When I looked at the readings assigned for this week, I began with our Old Testament passage. I saw that it was from the book of Job, a book whose purpose is to address the huge question of why bad things happen to good people. So feeling a bit cowardly, I moseyed over to the gospel passage to see if there was something more comfortable there. But what I found was Mark's account of Jesus speaking on divorce. I started to think I might be forced to preach on the somewhat boring passage from the letter to the Hebrews. But then I considered that God might be nudging me a bit, telling me it was a Sunday for dealing with things that are hard to talk about. So I girded my loins and decided to dive into all of it. I encourage you to gird yours and come along for the ride. The book of Job takes on the normative theology of the day that said that those who act righteously can expect good things to happen, and that those who don't can expect suffering and calamity. We're told more than once that Job was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And yet great misfortune befalls him. He loses his children, his livestock, his wealth, his health any semblance of quality of life. God, who doesn't come off well in Job, not only is aware of it, he allows it. And so the theological question raised is, if God is all-powerful and all-loving, how can he allow evil and suffering to befall his people? More colloquially, we ask, why do bad things happen to good people? And most personally, we ask, why do bad things happen to me? Our preferred answer to such questions is that God doesn't want it to happen, that these things happen as a consequence of sin, of personal sin or corporate sin that is part of this fallen world in which we live. When confronted with this question, I myself have offered such an explanation. But here, God agrees to and permits Job's suffering. Job's friends try to offer explanations, but they aren't helpful. They want to believe that Job has done something to deserve such hardship, that he has ticked God off and he might as well just admit it. Job's friends would be more comfortable if there was a logical answer for Job's suffering, especially if that meant that they could avoid it. Job, to his credit, will not have his suffering explained away in a manner that isn't consistent with his reality or with what he knows of God. Attempts to explain suffering are seldom satisfactory, and they do nothing to relieve the suffering itself. In fact, sometimes the attempt to explain suffering where no explanation exists actually adds to one's suffering. We struggle to reconcile our pain and suffering with our faith in God. Our suffering can cause us to question whether there is a God or whether God really loves us, cares about us. Job tells us that in our pain and suffering, we are to challenge God, to wrestle with God, if you will. No other way of walking through our suffering would be authentic. Lamentation is legitimate, even for a person of faith, perhaps especially for a person of faith. 
Job rails at God for 35 chapters. In its own way, confrontation with God can be redemptive. And Job tells us that God can handle anything we throw at him. The story of Job dismisses all our attempts to rationalize suffering and all our determination to save God's image. But we do know that God's ultimate response to our suffering is to enter into it as one of us, even to the point of death at our hands. We may not have answers to why there is suffering, but in Job we are clearly told that these struggles belong before God. We have another hard lesson in our gospel passage from Mark. Each time this passage is read in worship, many of us cringe, either feeling assaulted by it directly or worrying that others do. To test Jesus, the Pharisees ask him about the law and divorce. The law of Moses allowed that a man could divorce his wife. Jesus, as he so often does when answering these questions, doesn't refer to the law, but to God's intention. God's intention, he says, is that a man shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Then later in the passage, Jesus goes even further to say, whoever divorces their spouse and marries another commits adultery. This is an extremely hard and painful message to hear straight from Jesus' mouth if you or someone dear to you has been a party to divorce. I will not try to explain away Jesus' words. He says what he says. I will point out, without walking you through all of the detail here, that what is clear is that Jesus is looking to honor and protect relationship while showing mercy to the most vulnerable, which is consistent with all his teachings. In Jesus' time, women were extremely vulnerable when divorced. And while there was some debate about this, the common practice was that a man could divorce his wife for any reason. The main point, the main point that Jesus is making here is not that divorce is always the wrong answer. It is that he is serious about marriage. What Jesus is saying is that it is God's intention that when two people marry, they become joined in a sacramental, covenantal way such that they are no longer two separate persons. Not in an I'm no longer me, I lose myself as a unique child of God kind of way, but in a Venn diagram way. There is that which is me, there is that which is you, and we are joined in an overlapping, interconnected way that cannot simply be undone. This is especially true when you think of the effects of divorce on children, families, in-laws, and friends. We are not being truthful if we don't admit that all of our relationships are affected by divorce. And so, whether we're talking about counseling or increased compromise or willingness to be more present and engaged, our marriages are worth fighting for. In an environment where the commitment of marriage can be taken too lightly, where the desire to maintain an unfettered self can limit our ability to submit ourselves to a spouse, 
where we've been told that we can loose ourselves of the commitment of marriage when it no longer feels fun or a better offer comes along, it is good to be reminded of the seriousness of the covenantal sacrament of marriage. But the reality is that I don't know one person who was happy to get a divorce for whom it did not cause great pain, great guilt, a questioning of oneself, and a feeling of failure. Nobody enters a marriage intending it will end in divorce. Sometimes the need to end a marriage appears clear, abuse, addiction, adultery. Sometimes it's a slower, vague movement. God's desire is that we flourish. Marriages where partners begin harming one another, disrespecting one another, where the pathology of the relationship spills over into relationships with other loved ones, this is an environment where flourishing is impossible. At this point, divorce is the funeral for a marriage that has already died. In a broken world, divorce is sometimes necessary. And the hope is that in repentance and healing, the two may move forward on new paths toward flourishing. Divorce will not separate us from God any more than our other brokenness and sin separate us from God. When a marriage ends in divorce, it grieves the heart of God, not because some legal standard has been broken, but because of the pain and damage that it is to God's beloved children. God's desire is for peace and mutuality in all of our relationships. As we've seen here and in the immortal words of Carla Tortelli from Cheers, being a Christian is not for wimps. <laughs> Life can be hard and it is mysterious. We are forced time and again to recall that God is God and we are not. God respects us enough not to offer pat answers where none are available. He respects us enough to hold up his ideal for our relationships, even as he knows that we will struggle and fail to live into this ideal. In the end, we're called to trust that while we cannot escape or avoid the hard parts of life, we can know that God accompanies and upholds us through them, that his mercy outweighs his judgment. And that we will ultimately come to that place where God will wipe every tear from our eye and mourning and crying and pain will be no more. Amen.